Welcome POC students, teachers, both and neither. This is Failed by Academia, the podcast where we talk about how school screwed us. Today we have a very special guest, Ray Christian. You may have heard him on NPR Snap Judgment, or from his own podcast, What's Ray Saying? Or he's your teacher. Either way, Ray has something to say. Ray, it's so good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just dive into it. Can you tell us a little bit about your education background? Well, I have a, a BS in liberal studies. I have a MA in public history, an EDS, and a doctorate in education leadership. So you're easily the most educated person when you walk into a given room. Excellent. <laughs> Every great once in a while, maybe. <laughs> So, because of your excellent background, I was wondering if you could give us a taste in terms of the educational landscape when it comes to race. Wow. It's always been significantly different, especially after the end of the Civil War, when the states were mandated to provide public education to all its citizens, including four million newly emancipated slaves and Native Americans. And because they were publicly funded, not a lot of money went into schools for uh, African Americans at all. In many cases, in the Jim Crow South, schools were poor, so poorly funded that they consisted mainly of just shacks. Some blacks were convinced that education was a waste of time, and so they were told no point of having field hands who could be out working on the farm going to school. So a lot of blacks were convinced that education was of little importance. Um, like I said, the schools were poorly funded. Teachers were poorly qualified. Schools were not open for most of the year. Some were forced to close down completely. And this continued all the way into the 1950s and 60s. There were some exceptions, some land grant colleges, some uh, philanthropists who got together and uh, created schools for blacks. So obviously, no one is born with the innate knowledge of how their country's educational system has been set up. So I wanted to ask you, what were some feelings that you felt when you learned about that history? Growing up, to put it in some context, because it was the only life I had ever known to attend uh, segregated schools where all our teachers were black, we were all black, the janitor was black, uh, the ladies who worked in the uh, cafeteria were all black. It was the only thing I'd ever known. The fact that we had old books and uh, were poorly funded was not even part of my life. I couldn't even understand it. I went to elementary school from 1965 to say, 1970. So all the older people around us, all of our school teachers, our parents, they all grew up in Jim Crow. So the perspective they had compared to what we were doing was like, it's not so bad. So it was difficult to put this in any real context. Right. But I can remember... The year before integration, one of the little experiments that the school system started was once a week, uh, we were required to go all the way across town on school buses to attend a white school. We didn't take any classes. We didn't do anything. We had lunch and we just were required to mingle in the cafeteria. I suppose this was, I don't know, we would be inoculated racially that if we were in close proximity to white people, somehow we would absorb something from them. 
it, it served no purpose. It was awkward. It was strange. We were little kids. We don't know why we were around all these white kids. And I'm sure they were like, like, why? <laughs> why? Why did you bring these black kids throughout, throughout school? But the very next year, we had full-on integration. And it required a massive amount of busing. And I still didn't quite understand. I didn't understand the political or social ramifications for why this was occurring. I just knew it was happening. I knew that a lot of white people on television and on the radio complained about it. I knew that a lot of parents didn't like it, but I had no context. It wasn't until I had graduated from high school. I'd been in the Army almost 15 years. So I was probably almost 30 years old before I started taking some courses, doing some more reading, and I got a larger, more global understanding of what was actually happening. I didn't realize that people were resistant to integration. I didn't realize why the busing had occurred. Now I did. I didn't understand why white families didn't want to integrate. Looking back on it in context, now I can see how awful it was. I can see what the fight was about. I wasn't aware enough at the time and wasn't old enough to be able to have any sense of it made. Now, from looking at myself as a happy little innocent black kid just dancing around in the world and white people lived on this side of town and we lived over here, I could see racism in context. From the things I heard to the way we were talked to, to the white visitors to who used to come to our school and observe us like we were lab rats. But I didn't know that when I was a kid. I just thought these occasional white visitors who put our teachers and principals up in arms and how they selected the best looking and brightest kids to speak for the class and how we were all coached didn't make any sense to me. I would almost feel embarrassed about it now. How we performed for our white visitors. I didn't know. I, just, I had no idea that these were attempts to get more funding by the school administration and the staff by entertaining white people who had an interest or vague interest in our school, by having to sing for them and read for them and do little tricks for them and a whole manner of things they coached us to do. Of course, now, because you asked me that question, I'm thinking about it more deeply and, uh, how I felt about it emotionally now to think back on the, what could have been an innocent period of time and how much we were just actually pawns or being used. And I, I can't put the administrators in any bad light trying to understand what they were trying to do. You know, now I, in some ways I would be embarrassed by their behavior, but they grew up in a different world in a different time. Because in later years when I was uh, a young adult, I would be embarrassed by my teacher's behavior. I would look back on that with some kind of grimace. You guys were Uncle Tom's. You dancing. You had us dancing for white people. Well, what I didn't know is their, their level of fear and their willingness to do anything, embarrassment or not, to get the funding that they needed. So my attitude about these things have evolved as I got a little bit of knowledge and a little more knowledge, and I started to age myself my ability to empathize how they had to lower or reduce themselves because I couldn't understand the reality of that. And I couldn't understand the fear 
that white parents had. That didn't make sense to me at the time. Now I get it, whether it was real or not. But I, I didn't have the education or the understanding then. It just didn't make sense to me. I just thought it was a weird thing. Right. You know. I wanted to ask you, clearly things are a lot different now. But do you see any traces or remnants of that kind of behavior in higher education? There seems in a lot of places. I, I don't know how it is all over the country, but I can tell you in the South, you have schools going right back to what they were before. They're being resegregated. And that results in the same thing that happened in the past. Funding starts to get lowered. There is a wave of uh, anti-intellectual sentiment in the country that seems odd and strange. But I would say a large amount of the population of a particular political persuasion is not as trusting of uh, people in academics or teachers. But at one time, I would say that uh, the respect that teachers had and professors had universally was pretty high within the community. But I see a move toward doubting the qualifications of academics the idea that anybody can be a researcher, everybody is a scientist, everybody is an attorney, everybody has the knowledge. So all your years of training means nothing because I have an opinion too. The idea that such a large population of people are, are moving in this direction, is it makes you nervous that a radio personality has as much authority on a, on a scientific topic as you do. You're hearing it now, even on medicine. And with the pandemic, it's almost dangerous. I'm hearing weird pieces of logic. It's just basic. We're talking just basic science, not extreme. But this move toward questioning what was uh, accepted academics is, is concerning. Teaching is almost not enough. You almost have to have buy-in that you are qualified to say the things you are saying. I don't recall a period historically where there was such a move I knew people had religious and spiritual guidance, and that may have come into conflict with academia, but there's so many uh, religions whose whole function was to educate. You got to teach people to be literate if you want them to read your holy book. But this is different. This, this, this is probably more political, and I think it's dangerous. It's ignorance, but to a level that is dangerous. I think you're correct. Right. To a level that can kill you. And has. And has. And has. If you had the authority to combat this in some way, what do you think would be the most effective way to combat this wave of proud ignorance? Oh, my goodness. I, I think it'd probably be illegal, probably <laughs> immoral. You would not be able to provide revisionist history, revisionist anything. If you weren't qualified to speak on it, you wouldn't be heard. You have people who can't remember half of what they were taught in high school. Now, they are proud uh, proponents of the Constitution. At least one or two amendments. Didn't know nothing in high school. You know, now now they, they're constitutional scholars. Yeah, they've seen threads on Facebook, and that is good enough for them. I think that if we had to operationalize your suggestion, I think it would be education reform, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely. Complete education reform. But we have a cultural problem 
that doesn't that makes that so awkward in in some countries where the population is more homogeneous and they don't have the same cultural and historical baggage to deal with they can be more unified i'm going to say uh japan the japanese education system i would say germany for europe as examples of when you got a homogeneous po- population for the most part they have the same value systems and this is a lot easier but i'm understanding that's becoming more complicated in europe as well because of immigration mm-hmm. but our history of, of unequal education is just that baggage is still there and uh, it's it's going to take a while do you have any thoughts on how to if not accelerate the process at least begin it there's going to have to be a, some kind of concerted effort all the sources of misinformation are so available. I don't know if Google may have just done us a, a misservice. You have lots of valuable things. You have jewelry. You have uh, diamonds on Google. But it's also full of feces. I mean, it's like a turd in a punch pole. People will still consume it if they're thirsty enough. But if we can get rid of some of that thirst, that, that, that lack of knowledge, people will be more discerning about the information that they're receiving. And right now, I mean, you got people who want, but they're not receiving. And they're just taking in whatever is out there. Misinformation, crazy information, all kind of biased notions that make them believe whatever they want to believe. You can, there's an excuse for everything. Could you imagine if the library, only one book in a hundred was was valid. That's very fair. You're actually reminding me of a time when I was tutoring someone and they had the opinion that corporal punishment was a good idea. And so I was like, all right, I want you to go and find sources that support this claim. I was a psych major, so I was well aware of the literature behind this, which clearly states that it does no good service to do that. So um, she couldn't find any sources and told me so. And so she said, I'll just have to look harder. All I have, to, all I see is all of these opinions that are contrary to mine. So I just got to look harder for people who agree with me. Right, 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 right. And, and all their data is, is just so anecdotal anyway. People have been beating the hell out of their kids for forever, and it, it never stopped crying. It never. There's no evidence of that. Like you said, it sounds good. You might have heard it on the radio. You don't have to look it up. I hear a lot of people say, especially on social media, do your research. What are they talking about? You know, I always challenge people saying I researched it. I always, I'm thinking, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. I just don't believe you're interested enough in that topic that you would spend hours of your day researching. I don't believe it. It just it that's just not how people function. And that's just my challenge to people who just randomly say I studied everything about some random subject. It's you didn't do it in college. You're not a doctoral student, you're not a graduate student. You just randomly decided that this topic interested me. And uh, I hear that about Martin Luther King a lot by the way. I've had random people tell me, "I studied Martin Luther King." Like, this is profound. I go, you know, there's probably a thousand books about Martin Luther King, right? And uh, I don't know, he may have been the subject of uh, 200 movies, but you decided that you were going to research a guy that nobody ever heard of before two years ago. And this is profound. A lack of education informs people. It it, it forms their political views, uh, their views of nutrition, child rearing, 
political process, the environment, people's gender, just just bad science all around. And a lot of racism, bigotry, hatred, homophobia is based on pure lack of education. You see that a lot uh, uh, in attitudes uh, across genders and sexuality, probably the most pure ignorance of biology, ignorance of psychology. And, you know, everybody's a psychologist now. I think it's a very interesting point that now you have to get people to buy in to what you're saying, not just from your educational background, but there's something else that they need to buy in. And I think that the buy-in factor deals with how your information helps Mm -hmm. their purpose or their cause or what they want to believe. Yeah, I see that. Uh, Like, they may want to know what your religious what your religion is first before they'll even think you're being truthful. Uh, What political party affiliation do you have before they'll think that you're truthful? What kind of food you eat? What's your skin color? Is it coming from a man or a woman? Not your academic qualifications, not your lived human experience, but really superficial things where they're not going to give you any buy-in just, just through that filter alone. We don't have to get to the factual or your academic qualification, just the fact that your face doesn't fit the filter. How do you think that impacts people of color who go into higher education? There is certainly an unspoken pressure of knowing that you have to be more professional maybe more animated in some cases, more involved to be taken seriously. And the major issue with that is that average may get you fired. Average may get you in trouble. Average may not be enough. Needless to say, if you're incompetent, you know, then it becomes a reflection on all African-Americans. This is probably one of the, the other kind of pressures. It's not your own conduct, but the conduct of your peers that reflects on you. One of the things that comes up a lot is African-American men in education. There's so few. One of the things uh, that comes up a lot, if you're a black male and you're teaching in any school system, you become by default the school's chief disciplinarian. A lot of black men complain about they get called all the time when there's a discipline problem. You know, they have to come to the office. They have to talk to the student. They and there's a point where you get fatigued of being the, uh, the school's Joe Clark, the school's uh, change agent, when maybe all you wanted to do is teach, or maybe you are not even of that personality. Maybe you're soft-spoken. But that expectation is pretty extreme in education, probably not so much in the, at the college or university level. I do have to say that I did once get in trouble, and my now mentor is an elderly African-American man. So the fact that you said that just, (laughs) which lends itself to just an adjacent issue. If you're a person of color in higher ed, how you also become the default mentor for students who are not white. I would tell you, uh, teaching first year seminar courses, all the athletes wind up in my class. They would say that this is random, but it's not random. It's because I'm black. And so they put all the athletes in my class 
every semester, I get them all. I mean, it's like uh, if there are 25 students in the class, 18 to 20 of them would be athletes. And more than half of them will be football players. Once again, this is because they tried to stuff these kids into the classes with black professors. Some of it is mentoring and some of it is because uh, maybe these classes won't be as difficult. Hmm. And I and I think there's a level of that at play. This is just my observation, maybe over like a 20-year period, uh, looking at the kind of students that I have in my class. I think it's intentional. Like I said, on some level, you think, you know, mentorship, but I think it has to do with uh, difficulty, unless you prove otherwise. I'm sure that there are some Black or African-American professors, once they get a reputation of being difficult, those classes don't have those students anymore. I wanted to ask, when you were going through education, you were clearly a non-traditional student. Absolutely. What were your experiences? I started college when I was about 35 years old, and I was in the Army, enlisted man in the Army, and I got motivated to uh, to attend college because I didn't. I had this dream that I could go to law school, and uh, I started talking about it a lot. And then it was pointed out to me, look, you don't even have a college education, you know, give up on the the stupid ideas and focus on your real job. Well, that kind of motivated me to focus on uh, going back to school. But it was difficult. It was difficult because of my age and my job. I could only go to school at night. I mean, I was a full-time active duty soldier. I was a paratrooper. I'd come to class injured, tired head ringing from a concussion, constantly having to drop classes and pick up classes again. And it took me six years to get a four-year degree. Oh, more like eight years. Very, very difficult circumstances. But I was enjoying it. The more more I was doing, the more I liked to learn. So that was my initial experience. So if I'm not mistaken, you actually made it to law school. I did. It was the happiest thing, moment in my life when I found out that uh, I was accepted to law school after I received a number of rejection letters and nobody thought I could do it anyway. I got into law school. I'm not a traditional student, like you said, by any means, uh, especially for law school. I'm one of the oldest students in the class. I have four children. I'm recovering from severe post-traumatic stress disorder. I had been in the Army since I was 17 years old. Uh, By Army standards, you know, at 38, I was old. Now, in civilian world, that doesn't seem like, but the Army ages you. So I was like an old man. So my life experience was completely different. Again, not having a traditional college experience. The type of camaraderie you might have in a college experience. I don't know, learning to drink alcohol, messing around, fooling around, being absorbed in the environment. That's not that college experience I had. It it was pretty much just to the point. I mean, a lot of late nights, you know, getting out of classes. When I think about uh, my undergraduate experience, nighttime comes to mind. And all the students, the the night school population is just full of uh, working people. People don't talk much after class. You know, you got to go. You know, people are concerned about kids and things like that. But getting into law school without the traditional experience uh, made me kind of awkward socially. And law school was hard. 
it was very difficult for me. Uh, it's difficult for anybody, but it was especially difficult for me because I didn't have a traditional background. And as hard as I tried to study, after the midterm exams were taken, uh, I had found out that I had failed all of them, five straight Fs. And the only way that I was going to get through law school now was for me to ace all the final exams. But before that happened, I got a call from the, uh, the assistant dean of the law school, and uh, he told me that uh, I should withdraw, that I was the worst student in the law school. He didn't know why they accepted me or how I got accepted, but if I should graduate, he would eat his hat. Now, when I walked out of his office, in my PTSD brain, my initial thought was, I'm going to strangle him to death. <laughs> But that was all my anger and frustration and the, the fact that this, this man was trying to interfere with my dream by trying to influence me to quit or give up. And I was a soldier and I served in combat and I killed people and I led people in combat and I jumped out of airplanes at night. I was not going to quit law school, but. Law school is not about physical fitness. You can't beat or tough your way through law school. This was an intellectual activity that I, I was weak. So the only the good experience I would have in law school is when I was uh, encouraged by my friends to participate in the school's closing argument competition, which is the highlight of the law school year, you know. The professors get all their best students together and they try to encourage them and coach them through because it's good for their resume. And I got excited when I heard about it because there were there were no opportunities to really like, you know, to, to do any verbal battle. And uh, that I had experienced none of that at, at that point in law school. But this is something I really wanted to do. But I, I also knew that uh, I was the worst student in law school. So uh this probably was not going to work for me because certainly no professors uh, were going to work with me. But uh, I had made three friends when I was lost in law school, three older guys, and they were always encouraging me. So when they heard about the competition, they all ran up to me immediately and said, man, you have got to try out for this competition. But I, I resisted that. I, I told the guys, maybe you haven't heard. I'm the worst student in law school. I'm not going to go out for this and embarrass myself in front of everybody. And they go, oh, man, come on, do it, do it. You know, and and even if you don't, you, you kicked out of law school, dude. This is what you wanted to do. Do it, do it, do it. And I finally, OK, OK, I gave in. All right, I'll do it. I'll do it. I ended the competition. So in the weeks prior to the competition, I didn't do much preparation because I uh, I didn't know how to prepare. Three days before the competition, I, I wrote some notes on a tissue paper. At some point, I blew my nose with it, and so I didn't have any notes. So the day of the competition occurs, and the, and the way it works is uh, you knock on the door, uh, you go in, you make your presentation, and you hear applause, and you sit down. The next person knocks on the door, makes their presentation, applause, and that, it's, that sequence continued until it got to me. Um, I knocked on the door, I went in and it's packed wall to wall people like a Roman Colosseum and it is deadly quiet in there. 
And I walked painfully slow up to the uh, front of the courtroom because I'm thinking in my head while I'm walking slowly, I can't talk about the law, but I can tell them a story. I can tell them a story about right and wrong. I can tell them a story about justice and injustice. So I went up there and I told my story. And I ended with this line. And just like the boogeyman that lives under my little girl's bed, made up of dust bunnies, lost buttons and pieces of toys from Christmases long ago, exposed to the light, the prosecution's case just isn't there. And I walked the hell out. And the courtroom was completely silent until I got outside the door and I shut the door behind me took a deep breath and I heard this sound, this loud noise that sounded like thunder. And that was the entire law school at once starting to applaud for me. But I didn't turn around to go back inside because uh, I didn't want people to see me cry. That was probably the, the highlight of my entire life up to that point. So the final exams, uh, they would come and they would go. And a few days later, I found out that I had actually won the competition. (laughs) The irony. And then three weeks later, I would get a letter in the mail telling me that I was being academically withdrawn from law school. So now I'm broken. The only thing that got me through the last six years I was in the army was thinking that uh, one day I'd be a lawyer. All the hell I was going through, everything I was starting to endure, the light at the end of the tunnel was one day, one day, I'm going to show them all. I'm going to leave this place. I'm going to be more than I ever was. The fact that everybody was proud of me, my family, little guys I served with in the army, people I went to school with that couldn't graduate. I was going to be everybody's lawyer. And now I let everybody down. I was a failure. All the people that said it was a ridiculous idea were right. And it took a long, long time for me to think just maybe I could give myself just the smallest pat on the back. I was able to beat out the smartest people in the law school at their own game. If I hadn't had the stupid idea of becoming a lawyer, I'd have never went to college at all. If I hadn't got kicked out of law school, I'd have never went to graduate school. I would have never earned a doctorate in education. I'd have never become a college professor. I would have never have earned a Fulbright scholarship that I just found out about a few weeks ago. So the journey didn't take me to a place where I could uh, combat injustice in a courtroom but it did take me to a place where I could uh, combat ignorance in the classroom. So that was my road through education, a rough road, a non-traditional road. That was a long answer to your question. So I did make it to law school. Yeah. So that I did make it to law school. I got to the door, but it didn't open up to go the way I thought it would. There was a point that I didn't think I could, after, I didn't think I could go on. There was a point that that had been so long my dream. 
It was such crushing that I didn't see anything else. I would say maybe for a moment, that's when you start thinking, uh, I'm done. I simply don't care anymore. But given time, one can recover from that, even though in the moment, the system is just not geared to kind of help you emotionally. I had kept that I had been dismissed from med school as a selective secret for a few of my closest and most trusted friends. I'm still in the middle of dealing with the complicated feelings of wanting to be a doctor since high school, getting in that same mentor who (laughs) picked me up when I was being disciplined. He was the first person I hugged when I found out that I was going to be admitted. He actually handed me the letter of acceptance. So to deal with that, his expectations, my expectations, and processing that, I, I got to reflect it back to you. Tell me what advice you could give to people who are still in the midst of finding themselves failing. Everybody needs an opportunity or a chance to retune themselves. This is a painful process. You got to cry all the tears you want to cry. One of the things that I held on to for too long was not wanting to put it out there. Like you said, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to acknowledge it, but it was killing me on the inside. I had to find another interest. I always had an interest in history, but I didn't see it practically. I didn't think you can't change the world as a historian. You know, you're not going to argue great cases before the Supreme Court. That's that's the way my mind was, cynically, because I couldn't have my goal. But history did interest me. So I had it in my head, actually. I'm going to go back to school, get a graduate degree. Then I was going to go back to law school. I was going to try. I was going to try to retool. I knew and I read about people who had went back. And they either had taught or did something like that. So that was my initial plan. But when I was in graduate school, I started to like it. I liked history. I liked public history. I liked museums. And I started thinking less and less about being a lawyer and more and more about the paperwork part of being a lawyer that I remember from law school that would have dominated my life. I could never have thought that I would got to a point that I could see myself doing anything else. And then education itself became important to me. I was trying to understand and I wanted to know more about why it is I didn't do what I did. But I saw another mountaintop. There was being a lawyer, but there was also having a doctorate. Hmm, that could work. That's hard. I could have some credibility. And the more I got into it, the more interest I had. One of the most significant uh, courses I had when I was in uh, working on my doctorate in education was uh, we were doing a series of studies about why graduate students fail, which is ironic. When you're in graduate school and you're taking a course on why you fail, you started becoming very introspective. And I started learning about a lot of it is not your internal motivation. Some of it is not academic difficulties as much as we 
We lose our motivation on certain areas that become difficult. We are not mentored closely. You start to feel like you're not part of the group anymore and you stop trying. And in education, you see this in, in schools. But students, a lot of time with professors is taken up with students who don't need their help at all. And the students who might, I don't know, you know, it's like after a class, the professor's desk is full of people who are just talking about nothing. And uh, people who really need help are ignored or you just don't have the courage to try to fight your way at the top. And or you don't seek that help out until it's way too late. But you never give up completely. You know, one way to rethink it is how to get back in the game. And I never stop thinking like that. That might take you back to graduate school or your program, or it might take you to another one. But to be motivated by staying in the game and come up with more ways to try to fight the impossible. People will say you can't get back in, but that's not the case. Get a little more education under your belt and go back at it. You know, you want to get more qualified than you were the first time around. I've said that to uh, former medical students, uh, PhD students, engineering students, law students. There are ways. They're just not easy. And this is very individualized, of course, you know, depending on what program you get. I don't want to, you know, to sneak your way back in, but to, to try to find a, a way. Uh, there are support groups out there that, that I didn't see in school of people who've had similar experiences and tried to formulate and fight new ways to, to get back get that dream re-kicked in. There are people who this is an impossibility, but uh, keep fighting for that mountain. You keep going for it. I love it. I also, I'm curious if this was something that happened with you. I'm currently in a grad program and it's like a night and day difference from that and medical school. Medical school, I was a black sheep I told my medical school counselor, I feel like the problem child of this school. And he just kind of nodded, just no follow-up. But I felt like such an outsider. I'd try to reach out to people, and it would go so poorly <laughs> that I think I developed some kind of learned helplessness for why even bother reaching out. Oh, my God. That, I have such a similar experience. I started aggressively reaching out to professors in the afternoons, office hours. But instead of appearing to be a, the kind of student who was just seeking assistance or was really motivated to learn, based on what the dean of the law school said to me, it, I came across as pathetic. Um, his exact words were, I think you're trying to invoke either fear or sympathy to get your way through law school. I was That was such a gut punch I would go, wow, I came across as pathetic. You know, I guess I didn't have, I don't know, the arrogance or the 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 the, the persona. You know, they just didn't see me. And that was all social. You know, the cues I was giving off, whereas I thought I was trying to be motivated, that the professors would like me. They would work with me. They would want to help me because I was such a motivated and, and interested student. But it did not go that way at all. They did not see me that way. They just went like, tiss, tiss. And that embarrassed me. And then I withdrew from that technique completely. I stopped doing that at all out of embarrassment. 
I don't know when in my progression this happened, but I got the note that I was a bad communicator. <laughs> where I was I was completely struck by that because when I'm in a group, I think I'm pretty able to engage everyone. It was such a dissonance to what I had known about myself. These notes that I was getting from people, I was like, who are they talking about? They can't be talking about me. I think we always end up hearing about the people who were able to overcome all the odds that were thrown at them deal with all of the curveballs, all of the abuse, but I think it's just as brave to be able to succeed in a way that you didn't initially plan for. Yeah, that's 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 the emotional beauty. But the key to that, of course, is to keep climbing. There are other peaks, even bigger goals. You just go back for the hard again. And I see myself, because there were like lesser things that I could have done. That I just would not have been satisfied. It's like, once you want to be that thing, you don't want to be any less than that thing. You know, somebody might, I don't want to be a paralegal. No. Oh, yeah. I'll be a doctor. Just not the one that I thought I'd be. Sure, sure, sure. You still, you're still climbing. And again, it's it's almost like the the, the schools put a lot of, money and resources into recruiting and selecting students, but maybe not so good a job of maintaining those very students. They went all out to get, they get you there. And it's almost like they don't take care of you. They brought you there. They said, you are the one. So now they should be doing their best, but pedagogy ain't always the greatest thing in, in uh, graduate programs. That is to say that they're not always the best teachers. They are the experts in their fields, but there are not a lot of coursework in teaching methodology. And most graduate schools still have that flaw, and that fails many students. You are hitting on something that I have been yapping about since my undergrad days, which is it is unfortunate that universities recruit these incredible researchers for grants mm -hmm. and then just plop them in the middle of the classroom right thinking that they'll be able to do it you can be brilliant in one field but absolutely miserable when it comes to communicating your knowledge when you when you're majoring in education the professors all model the appropriate behavior so all of a sudden you realize damn they can teach that every class I had ever taken before in history and law school was really poorly taught because one of the skill sets in these courses is that you can teach yourself. In spite of the professor being bad, you have either some pre-courses, some insight, or maybe some special intelligence or whatever, some skill sets to get around poor teaching. The expectation I had that I would sit there like a puppy and just, you know, I'm just absorbing information. And then it would be like, I don't know what the hell you just said. And other students have to go, oh, that didn't make sense. This is what he meant. What? You mean we have to learn how to interpret? All graduate schools deal with that, that trying to get better teachers. But the crucible has been around so long, which is, hey, you're just going to have to fight through bad teaching. That's on you. It's all on you. And maybe if schools would spend more time in teaching, teaching methodology, then we could do more in terms of getting students through the courses. 
given all the effort that's put getting them there. A lot of great people out there still have a lot of great potential, a lot of good resources. We leave a lot of potatoes in the field. I think that for so long, higher education has been dominated by white educators who are not able to properly connect or convey with people of color. And I want to see a new crop of POC instructors, professors, experts, so that we can even the field. And I can't even begin to touch on how important it is to see those professors in action. I think there's so few that we end up bogging them down with how many POC people come for their mentorship. But yeah, it's crazy. It just we don't have an equal reflection of students who happen to be from different backgrounds, them educating and progressing to higher posts. Right, because the burden is on the student to, to level up even higher. You have to be a much better student than some of your competitors because you have to learn all new stuff that has nothing to do with the actual the discipline. And I said a lot of it is cultural, political, social skills that you may not have acquired to kind of easily get through or interpret what professors are saying or being able to seek the mentorship, the language to seek the mentorship you need because they're not concerned with giving it the other way. You know, they're not trying to mold you per se unless you're a special student. Dealing with gifted students is easy. That, that, that's not a real challenge to your ability to teach. That's easy. The real, the real thing is to take people who don't get it and mold them into some, turn them into professionals. You know, and I'm just saying that because I'm really hyped about education and teaching. That's my motivation. I believe I could teach a rock to read. You know, I'm fired up about teaching, but maybe you're not. That's not your desire. You're not going to take it that way. You're going to throw out the stuff. They get it or they don't. You're just doing your job, filling in the blank. Hey, you're not trying to build anything. And that's just probably an institutional attitude that, that exists. And maybe not in all places. There are probably those gifted and very talented professors who do do that extra to build up students who may not be missed. Not saying students who aren't qualified, but students who are qualified. But there, there are certain areas that if we could help them, give them a little a moment, you know. In the Army, we recycled people. You know, just say, okay, you didn't get that glad you take it again. It's, it's more like all or nothing kind of thing. You know, you, you don't have, you didn't get it together in this one thing, you can't do any of it, but, you know, again, a crucible where you invest a lot in getting these people and then you don't do much for them uh, once you got them. I'm amazed how often my medical school counselor would use the term hidden curriculum and it infuriated me. Yeah, you wonder, where is that class being taught? <laughs> I was like, do I have to get like the sun to shine in a specific way, get like a special crystal to shine on a paper that'll reveal the hidden curriculum? What the hell are you talking about? Right, right. I got the same thing. I got the same I got the same thing. It was like, what what language are you speaking? But I never got that magic piece of information like because I constantly ask, what do I need to do? Tell me. I know I have the right friends. I tried to be friends with the smartest people in the class, people who had it going on. We would talk. They would say, you sound like you know what the hell you're talking about to me. But like you said, the hidden career, what is it? There was something. Again, I think I know what that thing was now. 
And there's a lot of stuff that goes on that's explained outside of the classroom that I wasn't privileged to. I wasn't in the club either prior to school or while in school. And I noticed that people had a jump on information and procedures and policies that I was clueless about. I sat in the same class that they did. I heard none of that. So, yeah, the experience. That's how academia fails us. Thank you so much for your time. It was such a delight to talk with you. Oh, we have so much in common, don't we? How many more of us are there out there? I don't know, but I hope they reach out. Uh, me too. I, you know, I would hate to think, because we both remember that pain, I would be an ear. I could hear this if you would reach out, because I get it. It's so tempting to just not deal with it yes. and to not reveal it. It's painful. Very painful. It's it's like exposing a wound, but, you know, it's a journey to heal from that. And you're a living testament to how you can succeed despite that one thing that didn't go the way you planned. You can still be a beacon of success. Just you got to retune. You got to recalibrate, That's it. which I think is a wonderful way to phrase it. Perfect. Thank you so much, Ray. Can you tell people where they can find you? You can find me on What's Ray Saying on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you.